and uh, we'll begin. We're going to be in John chapter 4 today. Uh, the full story that we're going to pull from today is 54 verses. So we're not doing all that. Um, I didn't even put the whole text on the back of the bulletin, so I hope you're encouraged by the length of today's uh, story. Uh, but I did put a few things on the back of the bulletin as far as what to listen for. This is a very, very interesting story in the life of Jesus, and um, it takes place in a region of the world known as Samaria, and it takes place around a well that's still there today. It's called Jacob's Well. You can actually go there and go, man, Jesus sat here. So that's kind of an interesting uh, piece of geography, geography for you. Um, and that's where it takes place. I wish, if you're familiar with this story, it's the story of the woman at the well. And um, if you're familiar with this story, it evokes kind of a lot of questions about sex and dating and marriage and divorce and remarriage and divorce and remarriage and divorce and remarriage and divorce and remarriage. And then some sort of sixth guy that we'll talk about today. And it's, uh, it, it can evoke sort of these like, well, I guess this is a story about those things, but it isn't. In fact, there's no mention of sin in the story. There's no mention of Jesus telling the woman she should change some things about her behavior. There's no challenge to do things differently for her. There's nothing of the like. In fact, this is a story of Jesus entering the deep-seated brokenness of a person's life. And it has little to do with what... Uh, is going on in her life relationship-wise. It has something to do with something else. It's always the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing with Jesus. He's a great counselor. And so uh, we're going to talk about that today. The story begins with these interesting words. Uh, John starts the story by saying he, speaking of Jesus, what? Had to go through Samaria. I've italicized after you so that you can help me out with that emphasis. Are you ready? He had to go through Samaria. You can almost see John uh, with his uh, friends there going, well, you know Jesus. He just had to go through Samaria. Now, some of you may be thinking, I don't get it, but let me just help you out here. In the days of Jesus, or at least by the days of Jesus, and we won't get into all the historical points here because it doesn't, it, it would take all day, but by the days of Jesus, the relationship between Samaritans and Jews had reached a point where if they crossed paths, and they tried their best not to, if they crossed paths, there would be violence. Or there might be at least, at the, at the very least, there would be great tension between the two uh, groups of people. A long-seated hatred over generations had built to this place where by the time of Jesus, Jews never went through Samaria. They always went around Samaria. They never went through that neighborhood. You don't go through that neighborhood because those aren't our people. Now, before you think, well, that's just crazy, just remember that we have this in our own history as a nation uh, where there was a day when blacks and whites never crossed paths, but if they did, there was going to be trouble. And so you can just imagine, and in, 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 in the Samaritan Jew situation, is far worse than it ever was here uh, in our own country. So you can just imagine the, the look on the disciples' faces when Jesus goes, uh, we're going through Samaria to get to where we're going. Because again, Jews would much rather add a day or two or three to their journey than go through the region of Samaria. But John says, you know Jesus, he just had to go through there. And so before the story even begins, there's a larger story being told in the preface which is that Jesus, and this is the first time this happens in John's gospel, we're just in chapter 4, uh, 
Jesus is already boring a hole through the walls that divide people. And he's doing so in such a way that he's saying, I don't really care. And we like this about Jesus. I don't really care what people think of where I should and should not be or where I should and should not travel through. We're going because all people are God's people. They're all God's children. And we're going to go through there. But there's also the sense in which John says there's an agenda. Jesus had to go through Samaria. There was a reason that he had to go there and spend some time there. And so right at the beginning of the story, really the preface of the story, we're not even into the story, but we're kind of getting a larger story, and that is that, one, Jesus will not be defined by uh, the people with which whom he hangs out. It's not going to be his identity. His identity is not found in that. His identity and his, the way people perceive him is not going to be confined to the cultural barriers and walls that people have built. He's going to drive holes through that, in fact. And secondly, there's a statement being made by Jesus in the fact that he's going through Samaria, and that is that uh, he's essentially saying, listen, the world that I created and helped create, because John says that, Jesus helped out in creation, he was a part of creation, the world that I helped create will not be defined by these things, and that all people matter to God, and all people's identity is not wrapped up in where they were born, when they were born, what the color of their skin is, and so on and so forth. And so before we even get into the story historically and culturally, spiritually, religiously, and all that, we're getting a larger story, and that is that Jesus could really give a rip about where he spends time. And he's going to bore a hole through the walls that people have built that divide one another. And so John says, this is where we're going. We go, okay, we're going through Samaria. And you've got to imagine Jesus grinning as they walk through, and the rest of the disciples are just watching their back. Peter has the hand on the knife, like ready to take down a Samaritan, you know? I mean, it happened. It happened. And so this is an interesting beginning to the story. But it goes on. There's a piece that, you know, I'm not doing all the story for you because, we, again, we'd be here till tomorrow. Uh, but Jesus sits down at this well, and John says a woman from Samaria came to draw water from the well. And Jesus speaks to her. It's very interesting. He says, give me a drink. So he's obviously thirsty, but he says, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman said to him, uh, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a Samaritan woman, a woman of Samaria? So I put this uh, little back and forth on the screen for you just so you can get an idea of what's really going on here. I mean, Jews and Samaritans didn't play together. They didn't eat together. They didn't share space together. They didn't do anything together. And so Jesus has this Galilean accent, and he says, I don't know what that sounds like, but, you know, uh, hey, darling, give me a drink. I don't know. I, I, I kind of think it's Southern, but uh, it might not be. But he says, give me a drink, and she recognizes his accent and says, hold on, time out. This does not happen in our world, and you know that. Why is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? Now, what you don't know, or maybe you do know, is that in a couple of verses before this, Jesus, it says that Jesus sits down at the well, and it's the sixth hour, which means it's, it's 12 noon. When do people draw water from wells? They draw water from wells in the morning, not at noon. It's too hot at noon. Water is cooler in the morning. And so all the women would come to the wells in the morning time to get water, but this lady shows up at noon, which means she doesn't want to be around the other ladies, and maybe there's, maybe there's good reason for that, you know. Uh, but what we do know is that she is alone, and she's smart, 
If I want to be alone and I want to do this, I go at noon. And so here is Jesus and this woman at this well, and she sits down, and Jesus is thirsty and says in his Galilean accent, give me a drink. And she brings up the cultural issue and says, don't you know the walls that divide us? Why are you asking me for a drink just because I'm a woman from Samaria? Uh, A few verses later, Jesus says this to her, because they have this little conversation about water. (laughs) And then Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Duh. And whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. In fact, he says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up for eternal life. So if you were here last Sunday, we'll just hit time out here for a minute. If you were here last Sunday and we were looking at the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus just a chapter before, this same sort of thing was happening where the conversation seems to go wherever Jesus takes it, and wherever Jesus takes it is very, very confusing. But the other thing that I mentioned last week, and I'll mention again, that in John's Gospel, we, particularly in John's Gospel, we find that Jesus often speaks not directly to what's being said or talked about, but he speaks directly to the thoughts and the troubles and the desires or the internal issues of the person he's speaking with. Essentially, he reads their mail, and he starts talking about that. And it wigs them out because they shouldn't, he should not know these things about them. And so they have this conversation about water, but then Jesus says, hey, look, I've got the, you know, this water, the water you draw from the well, let's just all sort of get on the same page here. You're going to have to keep coming back to this well every single day <coughs> to get water. And you're going to have to keep coming back at noon. You're going to have to keep playing this game. And you're going you're to be thirsty again. I mean, this is nothing. I mean, everybody knows this is true, right? But then he throws in this weird kind of like, but I got some water, some magic water, that if you drink it, you won't be thirsty again. Now, as U.S. Americans, we go, well, that's just, I mean, if I'm, you know, if I'm at F2O at lunch and some guy sits down at my table and starts saying that to me, I'm out of there. That's just weird. Holds up his glass of water and says, if you drink this, you'll never be thirsty again. And you say, check, please, you know, and uh, all that. But this woman is a very spiritual woman. You'll see this in a moment. And Jesus is speaking at a spiritual level, and he's also speaking to the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing. He knows. He knows what she thinks about herself. She knows what's going on in his... He knows what's going on in her life. She's starting to sense that he might know that. And so he takes the conversation to a different place. He goes down a few layers, down to the heart, down to the spirit, the soul, and says, there is a water that you can drink, and then if you do... You'll never be thirsty again. And so the woman says to him, "Uh, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I love this. She says to him, I mean, she's with him. She gets it. She understands that this has to do with something uh, out of this world or something against this world, or something other than this world. And she says to him, she doesn't believe he has magic water. She knows where he's going. And she says, I want that. Give me that so that I don't have to come here again. So we get a picture here that her coming here to the well every day is a stigma even in her own eyes and in her own heart. And she says, give me whatever it is you're offering so that I don't have to do this again. Now, before we think this is crazy, we do this too. 
right? This is the same thing that we do all the time. You know, when the new thing comes out, we think, I got to have that thing. I'm an early adopter. I'm going to buy that thing, and then all will be well, right? So there's this kind of like, if I can just get this thing into my life, then life will be better, right? That's what we do. If I can just, if I could have that job as opposed to this job, then things will level out for me, right? If I could be in that relationship and not this one, maybe that's true, but if I could be in that relationship, then things will level out for me. If I could get married to that person, then things will level out for me. If, if I could have their kids and not my kids, if I could have their kids, then things will be a whole lot better, right? I and mean, that may be true too, I don't know. But you know, if I could just have all of that, if I could do that or have that or become that, then things will level out for me. And um, we see it in just regards to uh, even vacation, like, you know, on the social media, the Facebook stuff. I mean, it's like, I mean, you get tired of people counting down to their vacation. Like, 14 days, and then I'm, you know, whoo, you get pictures of the beach, you know, and it's like, okay, that's cool, right? We, we operate that way. Like, whatever it is that we don't have, or whatever it is that we do have, and it's now not working that well, and then we want the new thing or the other thing. And so we do the same thing. Give me that so that I don't have to do this anymore. Give me that thing, that person, that relationship, that family, that job, and then things will level out for me. Things will be better. And the older we get, the more we disagree with that lie. But here's this woman saying, okay, I'll take it. Because this blows. I'll take that. And that'll be better. And, and Jesus says, all right, go and call your husband and bring him here. Now, again, like, what? Again, it's the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing. Jesus says, go get your husband and bring him back. I don't know why he says that. I mean, if that's just all he came up with, I don't know. It's really weird. It doesn't even sound, I can't even like parse it out to like what he's trying to accomplish here. But at least what we do know is that he's getting to the heart of the matter. And she says to him, I love this line, it's so powerful. She says, I have no husband. Well, it's kind of a lie. In fact, notice what Jesus says next. You're right, he says, in saying I have no husband. For you've had five. You're like, woo, I don't know anybody who's had five. Like, I just don't. You've had five. In fact, in rabbinical culture, in the culture of the rabbis, three was the limit. Like, they were like, after three, I don't know what to do with you. Right? I mean, this was ancient tradition, like, okay, you can get married one, two, or three, three times tops, but after three, like, what are you doing? You know? The one common denominator in the bad relationships happens to be you. Right? I don't know what this is. This is kind of what they're saying. And then Jesus says... Uh, yeah, you're totally right. You don't have a husband, but you've had five. And then there's this weird part at the end where uh, he says, and the, one, the guy you're with now, he's not even your husband. So even Jesus is like, I haven't figured that sixth guy out yet. But the other five you've had, they're now gone, and here's the sixth guy, and we're not really sure where this one is headed. Now this is a very, very interesting turn in the conversation. Let's go back to the slide that says, I have no husband. When she says this, now for us in U.S. America 2014, I have no husband is not 
as desperate as it would have been in the days of Jesus. Like, if you don't have a husband in 2014, there's plenty of people that will say, hey, I know a place where you can find one. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a scene. Like, you can get in this scene and work your way towards perhaps getting married or at least getting into a long-term relationship. I mean, like, it's, we don't feel the same desperation as this woman would have in those days to not have a husband, to be a female in the Middle East in the days of Jesus and not have a husband was to place yourself at risk of prostitution, at risk of slavery, at risk of being injured, at risk of death, at risk of rape, and the list goes on. A man in the days of Jesus was the caretaker for the wife. It's just the way it was. And in the days of Jesus, no woman could file for divorce. The man has the right to leave, not the woman. And so this story really takes on an interesting turn because it's, you know, again, the traditional Sunday school reading of this is this woman gets around. But the reality is, is that this woman has been involved with five men who have either left her, divorced her, cheated on her, or have died. And she is struggling to survive. But her reputation is such that either she's cursed, either she's just, you know, there's always that person in your life It's like, man, just trouble finds them. And perhaps this is her, and she comes to the well all by herself, and her statement, I have no husband, is telling. It's very, very telling. It's essentially saying, I don't have anybody who's committed to me, and I don't have anybody taking care of me, and life for me is very exposed and scary. So Jesus, I mean, it's brilliant. How about giving me some water? Why are you asking me for water? Conversation, conversation. Hey, that water, you're going to keep getting thirsty, but there's a whole different level of water that you need. And he's right, because she says, I'll take it, because this is no good. And he says, okay, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. I know. And the whole time has been leading up to this. This is the confessional moment. I don't have a husband. It's the confession of, I feel alone, and I feel as though my identity has been wrapped up in a lot of failures. And I feel alone in that. Now, when Jesus calls her out and says, you got five, I don't know what the sixth guy is up to, she says in, uh, she says in the next verse, she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> so this is one of those moments where she's like, hold on, you know, like, where's the camera? Uh, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, if you're reading this from the outside in, you're thinking, what is she talking about? Again, it just seems so strange. But she's doing exactly what we do. Like if you're in a small group setting or a Bible study setting or some sort of accountability group or whatever, and someone inserts into the conversation the thing that is really the thing beneath the thing in your life, what do you do? You change the subject quick. And oftentimes what Christians will do is they'll make it spiritual. They'll talk about theology and Scripture because that's a whole lot easier than talking about what's going on in here. Right? You know, so your small group leader or your friend says, um, so I want to talk to you about that thing that you're really 
struggling through right now. Can we talk about that? And you say, you know what's more important to me right now is that whole verse in Revelation doesn't make any sense to me. And I've been reading all this stuff on Wikipedia, so I've got kind of a good knowledge of like the book of Revelation. And um, I really think that I'm more this than that. Let's just talk about that theological d- divide that's going on. I mean, like, we do that, right? And, you know, or in the small group setting, someone says, okay, um, how, how does this, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a good story here because, you know, I could have worked on this ahead of time and put it in my notes, but uh, no, I did. But j- just the example of like someone, you're, you're going through a story about Jesus, like this one perhaps, right? And you say, okay, well, how does this relate to you? And you know how this relates. You know. And then, but you say, yeah, but where exactly is that well? Like, do we really know where that well is? I mean, did Jesus really go to that well? Right? And so this woman says, Oh, okay, all right. You're a prophet. Let me ask you a deep theological historical question. And the question she asks him is the ongoing question between Jews and Samaritans of that day. Where is the right place to worship? Seems sort of strange, doesn't it? But it gets her off task. And then Jesus answers a lot of things, but he ends with this saying, but the hour is coming and is here now where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and what? Truth. So he pulls it all the way back around to honesty and integrity and like coming before God exposed and saying, this is who I am. Like true worship is not about space and place and forms, but about honesty and integrity and being open with God. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said, for they will see God. You want to see God? You're pure here. You're like, this is who I am. It's all, all exposed. So he brings it right back around to where she was. Now, uh, let me close this down and, and, and then close the whole thing down for you. This story is extraordinary on several levels, but the one level that I want to sit on for just a moment is that this story is about this woman's identity. And she, she says to Jesus, I don't have a husband, which in that day and time was her identity. If I don't have this, then my identity is a wreck. It's not worth coming to the well even with other women. I don't know who I am anymore, and I don't know what I'll become so much that I'm not even married to this sixth guy, because what's the point? And so there's this whole identity thing going on, and Jesus enters into this woman's painful situation and says, I've got a, I've got a better identity for you. I want to give you something that doesn't break. It's not less than. It won't run out on you. It won't cheat on you. It won't die on you. It won't leave you. And it is, in fact, who you are at the core anyway, which is that you are a child of God. The beginning of the biblical story uh, begins with these words in Genesis 1.27, that God created humankind in his own what? Image. This is so key in the whole story that when God made humanity, he did so in such a way that he sees us as his own image. And it goes on to say, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But the main thing here is that God created humankind in his own image that you and I are the image 
of God. This is our primary foundational identity. Not in all the things that we do, but in who we are from our origin, which is from God. That our identity is in Him ultimately. In Colossians 1.16, Paul writes, For by Him, speaking of Jesus, by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And then here's the last part. All things were created through Him and for Him. So again, from Genesis to all the way close to the end of the Bible, the story is the same, that humanity is the image of God. That's the primary identity of humanity. That's the primary identity of you and of, and of me is that before we are anything, we are God's image, and that we were created by Him and for Him. Like, this is the thing. I mean, so here's Jesus at the well saying, I get it. I know you thought you were, that they were your, you were for them, that you were for these five men and maybe this sixth guy, but you're not. That's a whole different thing. You, you have been made by God for Him. By Him for Him. That's the idea, that you have been made in the image of God, and that you are primarily His image. In the message version, Eugene Peterson closes uh, that Colossians text this way, everything got started in Him and finds its purpose in Him. Um, two Fridays ago, I turned 41. Some of you guys knew that. Some of you guys were very gracious, and you posted like six words on my Facebook wall. Thank you very much. And, uh, but that's the way it works. Like all day, I just kept getting the, the happy birthday things, right? And, they, you know, they kind of said stuff like, um, uh, happy birthday, Derek. Um, happy birthday, Derek. Uh, yo, yo, happy birthday. Happy birthday, my man. Uh, happy birthday. Hope it's a good one. There's always that one high school kid's like, man, you remember on your 16th birthday and you delete that one. And then, um, and then so you're like, no, I don't remember that. But, uh, uh, oh, you're really funny. Happy birthday, and I think there was another one that said uh, happy birthday. Like, I mean, that was pretty much the run of notifications that I got throughout the day, so thank you very much. But there was one toward the end of the day that was so cool that uh, I I cut and pasted it for you uh, for today. But it says this. I don't have it on the back screen, but it says, uh, on on this day in rock history, Derek Swetman was born. (laughs) Happy birthday, right? So this, is, this was my favorite one of the day. I mean, if you said happy birthday, Derek, or some, something to that effect, thank you very much. But this one, I really, really like this one. This is from an old friend, maybe 25 years now, but this is an old friend of ours, and uh, they know me very well. And if you know me, like, this one fits the bill, right? Because I'm, I'm a music fan. I've always been into music. And uh, it's been the thing of my life for a long time. And a lot of friends would say, man, that's who you are. Like, you're just, you talk about, you love music, you've got a lot of music, you know, and whatever. That's who you are. Like, they would say, that is who you are. And that's cool, because, like, I don't mind that sort of social identity. That's fine. But the question becomes, what if music went away? Please, God, don't let that happen. But (laughs) what if music went away? Or what if I lost my hearing, which is highly possible. What if I lost my hearing? Is this now who I am? Or is it something else? Right? That's so who you are. That's that's you. That is you. That's cool. That's that's my social self. But beneath that, like, who am I? Like, that's the real real question. Uh, Years and years ago when I was... um, let go and fired from my first youth ministry, 
It was a terrible experience because um, I loved what I did, and I poured my life and soul into that job, and it was what I wanted to do forever. And like, I worked at it so hard, and my whole life was wrapped up in youth ministry. And then they let me go. And for about three months, because I didn't do a thing for eight months, and for three months, I just sat around and sort of, I just sort of sat around and was like, well, I, what, what, what do I do now? I have no husband. Is what essentially I was saying. My identity has been taken away from me. I have no husband. Is the statement. What do I do? I, I, have, no, I have no husband. And then the sort of the second half of that journey was just sort of me redeveloping this, okay, fine, I want to get back into ministry. That's what I want to do. It's what I feel like I've been called to do. But it is not who I am. It is not the basis of my identity. It forms my social identity. I am a pastor. That is what I do. Now you avoid me, right? I get that. But it is not, who, it is not my primary identity, which is a child of God. And so the second half of that sort of time off was like sort of coming to grips with what does it mean to be a pastor and what does it mean to be a child of God? Those are two different things. And I want to get back in, but I'm not getting back in thinking that that is what defines me through and through anymore. I can't do that. Because look at the letdown when I'm sitting in a coffee shop, you know, at 27 years old with no job and just sitting around saying, I don't have a husband. I have no husband. So I come here alone when no one's around. And when you get fired from a church and it's kind of a small, tight-knit community, you go to the well alone. You go at a weird hour because that's the safest bet. And then someone comes along and says, why aren't you in ministry? And you say, I don't don't have a husband. That was taken away from me. So I just come here alone. And you've been there too, right? Right? If I could just have that job. And then you get it. And then what? Like, this is really the question of the Gospels. Then what? What then? What now? I got that job. I got that promotion. Cool. Now what? Vacation's coming. Awesome. Once you get through that, then what? We're going to have a baby. Awesome. Then what? We're going to move into this neighborhood. Fantastic. Like that hood. What are you going to do then? What now? Are you with me on this? Give me more of that water, Jesus, so I'll never have to come back here. That's not the kind of water he's offering. That their identity is not in what you can accomplish or what you can get or where you can live or who you can marry or how many kids you can have or whether you like music or whether you work at a church. Those are all good. And I think we should strive to live the best sort of lives we can in the worlds in which we inhabit, but they are, they are just our social identities. They are not the primary foundational identity, which is the image of God. And this woman, I think, forgot that. And so I want to just read this to you. It's several slides. Before we are anything, we are first the image of God. And though what we do will inform and shape our social selves, we must remember that our foundational identity comes from God. Approval is a good thing. You should be approved by people for the right things. 
That's a good thing. But it is also to blame. If we're not careful, the yeses of others will stop short of our origin. And they will fool us that we have made it, that we have arrived, that we have been made whole. See, this is the danger in just seeking approval, right? Is that they will trick us into thinking that we have arrived. We're now a whole person. I wrote down that Joshua Heschel once said, There is a realm of time where the goal is not to have but to be, not to own but to give, not to control but to share, not to subdue but to be in accord. Life goes wrong when the control of space, the acquisition of the things of space, becomes our sole concern. It's short. It's short-sighted. And so, as best we can with God's grace, may we, may who we are, which is a child of God, an image, may who we are inform and shape all the things that we do. Right? That's the trick. It's stopping short to just succeed and to just get further in your career or just to find the right person to be in a relationship with or to make the right amount of money or to even to pay off this debt or that debt or even to get on top finance. That's fine. Those, those successes are great. But they do not define who we are. Who we are should define what we do. And I just love that Jesus sat with this woman and never said to her, well, you obviously have a, you're like a serial dater, marriager, marriager, it's not a word, marrying person. Like he never says like, what is your problem? Mainly because he knows the problem. And he doesn't even really address like, can we go through each of those five and figure that thing out? He just says, I know you don't have a husband, and I know that statement, I have no husband, means a whole lot more than just, I don't have a husband. It's about what you have wrapped your identity in, and I know you feel broken and alone and exposed, and that's why you come here alone. But you don't need to do that. Because the water I give you, which is essentially this returning to you of who you are, it doesn't go away. C.S. Lewis said it this way, if you find ourselves in a desire with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world amen and you know that's true i know that's true chase what you want that you think will give you meaning and it fails every time at least in the long run and so C.S. Lewis's observation here is very, not just scriptural, but very true uh, for us today as well, just to think about this, that, hey, listen, pursue first your image, your identity in Christ, and then let all the other things be informed by that. It gets a lot easier that way. So I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to take communion together as we do each Sunday. And um, I just want you to move to these you know, one of these four tables with these things in mind. We'll just leave this quote on the screen for you as uh, Lindsay and the guys play uh, as you move to the tables. But just think on these things that we've talked about, that your identity is first in God, and then everything else is just informed by that. So let me pray, and then you can move to one of the four tables in the room. God, thank you for this day, and thank you for this wonderful story of renewal that takes place in the life of this woman. Um, 
We didn't get to it, but the rest of the story is incredible. I mean, she runs back to town and tells everybody about your son. And they believe her. And it's, it's amazing. And thank you that you get beneath the thing, beneath the thing. And that you know our hearts and that you know everything about us. David wrote in the Psalms that there's just nowhere that we can even run from you, can't hide from you. And God, there's probably plenty of people in the room, and I being one of them, that say in some form or fashion that we just don't have a husband. And what we're saying is that we kind of thought our identity was based on certain things. And when we fail or they fail us or they leave us, that it can get pretty tough. And God, I suspect there are people in the room that are in the midst of that right now, that they feel alone, they feel robbed of who they are, broken. And God, I pray that somehow through this story and our time together and through the worship and uh, through the communion in a few moments that you will remind them that they are your child. And God, give us courage to inform and shape all the things that we do because of who we are. Thank you for this day and thank you for your grace and your mercy. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.